Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. All right, well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, we are in the final home stretch of this uh, church history series. We have three weeks to go, so we'll finish on the 10th. Um, the last three weeks, I will uh, basically cover the modern church, per se. Um, <clears throat> This week, I'm going to go over uh, two figures who are pretty important, but I'm going to go over them pretty quickly. And then I'll spend a little more time in um, one less prominent but not less important figure. And then today, I hope to get through um, some of the struggles that the church started to deal with in the modern era. Um, So before I do that, would someone like to open us up in a word of prayer? Cindy? I was going to say, I'm not sure. Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we just uh, thank you that we are getting to study the truth about church history, about church doctrine. And we thank you for Tim uh, and his delivery of this. Lord, I ask that you help us to learn from the, uh, the past and live out the truth in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I actually could not find uh, anything that happened today in church history. So um, yesterday, November 25th, was the death of Isaac Watts, who wrote over 600 hymns, and he died in 1748 on November 25th. All right, so last time... I ended up talking about the, um, the March of Religious Freedom in England, ending with the Act of Toleration in 1689, passed by Parliament under uh, William and Mary, the same William and Mary named for our college here. The Act of Toleration allowed uh, nonconformists, those who did not conform to the doctrine or practices of the Church of England, to um, practice and preach their religion as long as they got a license. And that would become important in America. So I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But right now, I want to focus on one figure. His name is Francis McAmey, considered the father of American Presbyterianism. He was born in Ireland, attended the University of Glasgow, where he was actually converted and then became an ordained minister in 1681. Um, He was requested to come over here as a missionary by a colonel in Maryland, Um, to come over here and preach the gospel. He arrived in 1683. Um, He preached in Somerset County, Maryland, and established the Rehoboth Presbyterian Church, and this is the oldest Presbyterian church in America, although the building is a little bit younger from 1706. They still have a congregation. They do, yep. Um, That bottom picture is the picture of the church, and the little tiny dot is where the church is located, so the Delmarva era... Um, Eastern Shore, Maryland, up there, and that's where he would do a lot of his ministering up around in that area. We could have a field trip. <laughs> um, so he founded the, also the first Presbyterian community in the town of Snow Hill, which had been founded in 1686. He also traveled widely up and down the uh, East Coast between North Carolina and New York. And at this time in Virginia, the official church, the established church, was the Church of England. So If you wanted to preach outside of that, you needed a license. So 
I may have misspoke earlier when I said that Samuel Davies was the first uh, Presbyterian minister to gain a license. He was one of the first, but not the first. Um, so McAmey would actually um, get the Virginia legislator in 1699 to uphold the act of toleration from 1689, and the court gave him a license on October 15th, 1699. And so now he was preaching as a Presbyterian in the established Virginia. He helped form churches in, in these towns there. You can read that. But his major impact, that's why he's called the father of American Presbyterianism in 1706, he and Presbyterian ministers gathered in Philadelphia, and they established the first presbytery in America, in Philadelphia. And McAmey was its moderator. And so scholars consider this the birth of Presbyterianism in America. So that's why McAmey is considered its father. In 1707, he was arrested by the governor of New York for preaching without a license from the crown as required under the Toleration Act, which is interesting because he, he did have a license. So McAmey played his cards. He spent two months in jail before being released. Then at trial, he produced his license. Unfortunately for him, he incurred heavy legal costs, but the long-term impact is the bottom line. New York enacted legislation to prevent such prosecution again in the future, and so uh, religious freedom would open up a little bit more in New York as a result of McAmey's actions there. Um, he died in the summer of 1708, and he was buried on his farm in the Eastern Shore. So if you ever get a chance, go all the way up to the Eastern Shore and check out the first Presbyterian church in America. So that's McAmey. Another gentleman we will look at is William Carey, known as the father of modern missions. Um, he wrote an essay called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens. And he led, which led to the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society. He translated the Bible into those languages. Um, and his thinking for missions was, was different than what had come before. He had an emphasis on um, evangelizing whole countries, not just specific areas. And he said um, the foreign missionary can only make a small contribution to evangelization where that um, the people on the ground who actually live there would have to be really the impetus for converting a country, per se. Um, the development of local ministry is the first and greatest of all missionary considerations, he said. And then he says, Christianity must be rooted in the culture and traditions of the land in which it is planted. So let me give you a, an illustration of this. So um, Bob Davis, who was here a couple weeks ago, the tall gentleman with glasses, He's a missionary in Gambia, West Africa, yeah. Um, I think he was trying to establish uh, um, something like RUF or something at, at a school there, and there were two gentlemen who went up to go speak to the, uh, the principal or whatever, the head guy, and one guy was from the area and another guy was an American, and they didn't let the American in. And Bob said that's because they they sometimes associate the gospel or, or uh, the preaching with culture. And so they didn't, want, they didn't want Americans to come in and Americanize the place. They allowed the gospel to be preached and spread, but only by lo local people. And so William Carey established this, this understanding that uh, the gospel really gets spread 
by the people of the culture where you're trying to spread the message. And so um, a lot of our missionaries, like, like Preston, you know, he'll go over there and he'll learn the language, he'll eat their food, understand their customs, respect their customs, but he also trains people who live there, grew up there on the ground so that they can have an impact because one day Preston's going to leave, right? Maybe, I don't know, knowing him, he might stay, but um, the point William Carey is making is that really the gospel spreads through the people on the ground and the missionaries can come in and establish and help, um, but they really, they really can't do that much if you're looking at particular numbers. Okay, so that's William Carey's understanding. He's the father of modern missions. All right, so those are just two quick um, overviews of two gentlemen you should uh, know about. Um, I want to spend a little more time on this one guy, Anurim Judson. So what I actually want to do is read his story to you all because it's very uh, powerful. He ministered in Burma, which is now uh, Miramar in East Asia, and he, he endured a ton of suffering for uh, the sake of preaching the gospel and trying to spread the gospel. So um, I can't do justice by memorizing his story, so I'm going to just read most of it to you, so just bear with me. I think you will be highly impacted by his, his dedication to the gospel. <clears throat> So Adoniram, when he was in college, he had been heavily influenced by a fellow student named Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames was popular, brilliant, artistic, but also an unbeliever. So Adoniram had grown up in a, in a believer's household. He had learned to read the Bible at age three, I think. Um, so he met Jacob Eames, and they became very good friends. And he introduced Adoniram to what was called free thinking at the time, really a slightly form of atheism and and held to tenets of skepticism, which ultimately denied the deity of Christ and the gospel. By the time Admiral graduated, he had abandoned the Bible he'd, he had learned to read at three. After informing his parents of his unbelief and trying his hand at tutoring for a year, he set out to tour New England on horseback. One night, he stopped to spend the night at an inn he had never stayed at before. The innkeeper warned him that his sleep might be interrupted by a young man next door to Judson's room, who was violently ill. Sure enough, during the night, the moaning and crying this young man in the next room kept Judson awake. The man seemed to be on the brink of dying. His moaning and groaning and crying kept Judson lying wide awake in bed all night. Judson wondered about the young man's soul. Where would he spend eternity? What was his hope after death? In fact, Judson would recount later how he himself lay there thinking the same thoughts about his own soul and his own life and his own eternal destiny. Eventually, the moaning stopped and Judson drifted off to sleep. Early the next morning, Judson asked the innkeeper about the man's health or his outcome. The innkeeper confirmed that the young man had indeed died during the night. Judson asked him, do you know who he was? And the innkeeper said, oh yes, his name was Jacob Eames. So his best friend was dying in the room next to him and he didn't know it. Judson could barely move. In fact, he stayed at the inn for, four, for, for hours pondering the death of his friend. It was clear to Judson that God was on his trail. He immediately returned home to the joy of his parents and months later trusted in Christ for his personal salvation and then devoted himself entirely to the Lord. Two years later, he finished seminary studies and applied for missionary status with the Congregational Mission Board. He decided he would go to Burma. After this decision, after this decision he fell in love with a girl named Anna and two weeks after their marriage, they were on a boat to India. 
During the voyage, they changed their view on baptism and decided to no longer be Congregationalists. They became Baptists. The problem with this, there was no Baptist mission board to support them. They were going to be missionaries with no financial support. So they're on the middle of their journey to go be a Congregational missionaries. They change their views, they hold to their views and their convictions, and they, they, they're not going to receive funding because they're not, you know, being sponsored by the denomination that they're going out and they change their views, but they hold to it. So they're already starting, if, if you will, like, you know, at a negative number, right? So just keep that in mind. It took them years. So they arrive in, in Burma. It took them years to learn the language, six years for Judson to preach his first sermon, and seven years before he received his first convert. Seven years before he first saw the fruits of his labor. What do y'all think about that? What do you think about supporting someone who hasn't shown any fruit for seven years? What, you're on the missions committee, I mean. It's amazing, it's amazing, because you would normally second guess whether they were truly set by the Lord and so forth. I was gonna say, they were definitely walking by faith, not by sight. All right, well, we'll keep going. It gets worse. Um, before long, a printed press had arrived, and materials that Judson had translated into Burmese were being printed by the thousands, including copies of Judson's translation of the Gospel of Matthew. Eventually, Judson would complete the entire New Testament into Burmese. War eventually broke out between England and Burma, and all the English missionaries were immediately suspected as serving the British government as spies. Five years later, after they baptized their first convert on June 8, 1824, Burmese officials broke into their home, tied up Judson, and dragged him from his wife's side and put him in prison. He was placed in the building with 100 inmates. They were all lying on the floor, their feet in stocks and iron chains weighing 14 pounds. He would wear the scars of those chains for the rest of his life. At night, a bamboo pole was passed between the prisoner's shackled feet and hoisted up by pulleys, so they literally hung upside down at a height which allowed their shoulders to rest on the ground while their feet were pulled above their heads all night long. After some time, Judson was moved to a cage that once housed a lion, not high enough to stand up and not broad enough to lie down. During this time, Anne, his wife, delivered their daughter Maria and would walk with her every day, bringing Judson food, and she would beg the jailer to pass along to Judson. But soon she became ill and unable to nurse her baby. But suddenly, Judson was released after 17 months in prison. He was evidently needed to interpret between British and Burmese officials. By the time he returned home, his wife was dead. A few months later, their little Maria also died. Three months after that, he received news that his father had only recently died as well. Okay, so a lot of suffering in this man's life. He entered a deep depression for the last three years, he then built a hut some distance from the mission house, deep in the jungle where he moved in alone. He even dug an open grave beside his hut where he expected to die, and he would sit there for hours, even in pouring rain, contemplating his own death. He would write in his journal feelings of utter spiritual desolation, and I quote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. He spent his day reflecting, praying for some sign that God had indeed forgiven him from all sorts of imagined failures. So the, this, this is going through his mind of, of things he felt he should have done, but he wasn't able to do. He, he thought he could not live up to his calling. 
He was not a more humble missionary. He said he got, felt he got caught up with pride in his commitment. He felt guilty for accepting any accolade from others. For him, though, so this, this is part of his like three-year deep depression, and then the turning point would come. Um, it was a letter informing him that his brother had died at the age of 35. Now, you might seem that odd that a letter informing him that his brother had died would be a turning point for him, but here's why. Judson had prayed for the past 17 years for his brother's salvation to no avail. However, the letter informed him that his brother had trusted Christ for his salvation and had died a believer. He, Judson then began to pour back into the scriptures. His tortured soul and mind began to receive hope in the promises of God, forgiveness, and his grace. He re-entered the mission, picked back up his translation work, and that next year in 1831 was the beginning of a great outpouring of spiritual interest that he'd never seen before. Eight years after... Anne, his, his wife, after Anne's death, Judson married again, the widow of a longtime missionary in Burma. They had several children, and his family grew, and so did his church. On September 1835, he completed the Old Testament translation of the Bible into Burmese, and he also baptized the 100th member of, the, of his church. These had been his two goals, and they were now accomplished. Due to his wife's declining health, they decided to go home and recover and raise awareness of the mission in America. She would die en route to America and be buried on an island while Judson and the three oldest children continued on. After some time in America, he returned to Burma. He began a missionary to, the, to a people group there. They were a large ethnic group that was still following traces of Old Testament beliefs. Where he had once spent years sitting in a hut praying that someone would accept, him, accept his invitation to listen to the gospel, now in one winter alone, 6,000 people came to hear him. Some would travel three, three months from the borders of China to come hear him. In one year alone, Judson and his team baptized more than 1,000 converts. Ten years to win 18 disciples, one year now to reach more than 1,000. Soon after his death, at the age of 61, there were more than 200,000 Christians and hundreds of churches. Out of one out of every 58 Burmese citizens had come to faith in Christ. And for the last 150 years or so since his death, every dictionary and every grammar written in Burma has been based on the original work of Adoniram Judson. His Bible is still the premier translation for the Burmese people. Today, the fruit continues. There are nearly 4,000 evangelical Baptist congregations, which includes some 1.9 million people and counting in, in the Burmese area. Area and they all trace their spiritual lineage to the legacy of Adoniram Judson. So that's Judson's life and ministry in a, in a nutshell: uh, intense suffering, um, long, slow, bearing fruit. And so, um, what are some things we think we can learn from this gentleman and his life? Some things that you observe from the story. Don't be discouraged in not preaching. Folks right next to you. Yeah, a lot of perseverance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like with this brother, keep on praying for the lost. Yep. Pray for our missionaries. Yeah, pray for our missionaries. Maybe the fruit doesn't come as quick as we want. There is that discernment, I guess, of course, but sometimes it takes time longer than we may think. I wrote down two notes for myself. Um, 
One is that serving Christ does not eliminate potential suffering. And number two, willingness to suffer sometimes is often the threshold of, of spiritual fruit. So suffering can bring about fruit. Um, as Americans in Williamsburg, who are pretty well off, we don't like to think about such things. But um, God has blessed us here, but there are those who do suffer for Christ. We should remember them in prayer and help them when we can. Uh, here's a quote that I want to end with. Um, and what matters most is a life surrendered, which effectively says, no matter where you are, here am I, Lord, bury me. So that's Judson, uh, a fruit of William Carey, really, who spurred the missionary movement. Also, um, I talked a couple weeks ago about Jonathan Edwards uh, publishing and editing uh, the, journey, the, journey, the journal of David Brainerd. And so missionaries, um, so back up, David Brainerd was a um, missionary to the Indians in Massachusetts, and he pretty much killed himself because of his zeal for converting the Indians. Um, and so Edwards published his, his, his writings and journal, and that would influence uh, missionaries uh, about a century or so later. Um, and so Adoniram Judson is kind of the spiritual legacy and the, that fruit of that zeal to want to preach uh, the gospel to people. All right, so I think it would be appropriate just to spend a few minutes to actually pray for our missionaries. Um, so, Ron, would you like to lead us? And if others would like to follow, and then we'll move on. Father, we give you thanks for the story that uh, we've heard today about these pioneer missionaries in the four countries uh, suffering great persecution, great uh, issues in their own family lives, loss of loved ones, and so forth. We just uh, thank you for uh, being able to know that even our roots of Christianity came from these kind of people. Uh, whether they were the ones we visited today or not, uh, others like them. We thank you for the refurbished to us, Father. Uh, maybe we've talked about uh, Preston and Sarah in Lebanon, but there are many others that we uh, all know and support and just love. We would ask that you be with them and their issues that they're facing, civil unrest, uneasiness, family issues, uh, health and education for their kiddos, and whatever we just to lift them up for you. Father, we pray for our missionaries that they not be discouraged um, when they uh, don't always see the fruit of their labor. Uh, Father, I pray that you help them to see that behind the work that they're doing, you are doing work that they don't always see. Uh, Father, I'd also pray for those that are um, feeling discouraged right now, uh, perhaps, and that you lift their spirits, that you help them to see the vision for what you've called them to do. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank, for, thank you that you send out uh, your gospel through people. Uh, we asked us, uh, for us here in Williamsburg that uh, we would go out in whatever way that may be, whether we go ourselves or we send. Um, we thank you for the resources you've given us here to be able to send and support missionaries, and we pray that they would continue to spread your gospel of grace for the salvation of sinners. It's in Christ's name we pray. All right, so we move on from 
missions and missionaries in the 18th century now to, or sorry, 19th century, 19th century challenges. Usually, most of these are going to be intellectual challenges, but they would influence, eventually influence the culture and influence the um, church itself and how uh, the church had influence on people because of these uh, quote-unquote attacks. So I'm going to quickly go through them, but I will stop here and there and ask questions or open it for questions. Um, I would recommend, so what, my goal is just to give you an overview of challenges, just so you're aware of them, and then you can go and research it more on your own, because I only have 30 minutes to go through about 200 years of stuff. So first we start with Rene Descartes. Um, he is the guy that said, I think, therefore I am. Father of modern philosophy. He basically said, um, we need to know, um, we need to be, have absolute certainty in all areas of life, in, in science and moral ethics, all that stuff. And he was trying to figure out, how do I know that I exist? And he comes up with his maxim there. But basically, doubt everything. And um, some scholars put the Enlightenment, which was the age of reason, you can know things by reason alone. They put this at um, with Descartes. Some will put it a little bit later, like at the French Revolution, et cetera. Um, Brian Simpers would be the one to talk to you about that. Um, but really, we have this thought now that uh, we need to doubt everything and that um, our intellectual inquiry and reason can give us the answers we seek, give us the answers to life and meaning and things like that. So it starts with Descartes. And then we get the scientific revolution. And some things come out of that. Earth is not the center of the universe and common understanding anymore. The sun is the center of the solar system. We get the scientific method. We have many discoveries in anatomy. Um, we get the language of mathematics and geometry. And then the laws of nature are now beginning to be better understood. So none of this is bad in itself. This is all really understanding God's creation. Um, none of it's and bad, and most of these uh, were started by believers or theists, um, and so it wasn't bad in itself. But unfortunately, what would come out of it is this. The authority of science and reason began to replace the authority of the church and the scripture. Science began to begin um, trumpeted as the ultimate standard of truth. Science would solve all of our problems. And if we don't understand something, eventually we will figure it out. And from this, eventually you would get the belief that there is no need for anything supernatural, um, no need for uh, miracles. Or, and then you get, well, miracles aren't even a thing. They don't even exist. And so the, the influence of the church would begin to be impacted by science and the views of the Enlightenment. Um, like I said, science isn't bad. I'm not attacking science, but I'm showing one of the outcomes of this dependence upon science. It began, reason began to replace the ultimate authority of faith. Reason would now start to trump faith. From in, um, investigative inquiries into, um, you know, creation, into, into nature, into human anatomy, you get some philosophical discussions about um, morals and ethics and where do we come from and things like that. 
We would also get investigative research into texts themselves, into words, particularly the Bible. So one study that would come out of this is called Higher Criticism. This is a branch of biblical studies that flourished in Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries, which sought to apply the principles of the Enlightenment, scientific inquiry, and modern philosophy to the text of the Scriptures. The key point here, the Bible was no longer read as a devotional or spiritual guidebook or even as God's Word. It was read as a scientific historical document, something to be analyzed and picked apart. What do you guys think of this shift of thinking of the Scriptures? What sort of impacts do you think this would have on, on people's lives? Well, you lost confidence in the Scripture. Well, what does that mean? You don't have a guidebook. Okay. Come on, Dan. There's a flip side to this, right? I would say the Scriptures hold up to logic and reason. In fact, I would say Paul in particular makes logical, well-reasoned arguments fairly consistently. I, I don't know that I view this entirely the same way. I think that if it's true, it holds up. I'm not saying that there, there is no reason in the scriptures, and I'm not saying that people said there was no reason in the scriptures. What I'm saying is the impact of the scientific revolution changed the purpose of the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, I can agree that the primacy of Scripture is important. I don't know. I don't have enough historical context okay. to judge this well. I, I just wanted to say that um, intent is a difficult thing to determine here, other than I don't think it was intentional that men who were sincere skeptics were looking to analyze what had been accepted as fundamental truth. They wanted to understand that. The danger, however, is that in time and without a basis or a foundation to hold on to, truth can be easily undermined. And others who are not necessarily like-minded, they just accept what they're now hearing. So I, I hope that makes a little Yeah, I see what you're saying, and I, I think I agree with at the start, I don't think there was any intention. However, we do have historical records, documents, and I'll talk a little bit where there is clear intention to undermine scriptures. And that was as a consequence. A consequence. But you do get people who are, they are set out to, you know, like Jefferson, he's slashing, you know, that's. So at the start, no, I don't think so. I, I would agree with that. But the consequence later would be yes. I, I think also. Okay. I think also um, before this, the scriptures were seen as objective truth. Now, when it turns to this, um, it's viewing objective truth being outside <coughs> of the scripture and trying to apply that to reason out yeah. what's in the scripture. Mm -hmm. So it takes the objectivity of scripture away yeah. and applies it to something else. I, I agree with Daniel. I mean, you know, the scriptures hold up the logic, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, people are now they're they're eating from the the fruit of knowledge, and they're starting to depend on themselves. Yeah. And and feel like okay, I have this knowledge now. I don't need God. I can depend on myself. So it kind of you, you 
start veering away when you start thinking you can rely on yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, in line with that, that it, it makes it less personal and it puts a distance between the reader and, and the, the God that is part of the scripture. Because when you start looking at something as a scientific document, you hold it at a more at arm's length than you would at reading it. Cindy? Well, I think also when people start trusting your own reason over the authority of scripture, what they do is they use the apparent discrepancies in scripture to justify their unbelief. Yeah. And I think that happens today as much as it happened back then. Yeah. Here's a little chart of a little pyramid of higher criticism. The top three are different forms of higher criticism. Basically, what they have in common is they're trying to get to the real source, the real sayings of Christ, not what was redacted or written out. What did they? What what was really said? They and there's a fundamental uh, presupposition behind that is that because the scriptures, especially the New Testament, contain miracles and supernatural events, well, we can't have that in this age of enlightenment, and so therefore. Uh, there was myth and legend added, and so we need to get to the true text behind this text that we have received today. And so that's kind of what higher criticism is doing, because they have a presupposition of naturalism. There can be no miracles, there can be no supernatural events, it's impossible, and so therefore uh, this text has been corrupted in some sense, and so we need to find the real authors or what was, what was really said. That's really one of the aims of higher criticism that would come out a little bit later. Um, higher criticism in itself is not always bad because it did help us to learn about historical context of the scriptures, understand um, cultural things, idioms, things like that. Um, that scholarship really exploded in the 19th century. Um, but really the um, driving force behind most of higher criticism is that the scriptures, they're not God's word. They're not divine. They are just a historical text and we need to find what the actual historical text said, because we don't really have it now. It's been embellished. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, this process of trying to find the source behind what we have has been called, uh, and, and starting from the point that there are no supernatural things in the text is called demythologization. So Proponents of this would say the resurrection of Christ is impossible. In fact, resurrection of anyone is impossible. Therefore, it must be mythical and added to the text. So it can't be there in the text itself. We just find the pure form of the text. And that's, that's a presupposition they would have. And so from this, we get one movement the, called the quest for the historical Jesus. It's a movement in biblical studies which sought to separate Jesus from faith from the Jesus of history. Um, so... This would come out in different ways. We even had something like this as late as the 1990s um, when they would go and they would have a, some sort of standard that they made up and said, well, this can't be what Jesus said and, or did, but this could. And the standard is just completely arbitrary. But they're starting with this point that there can be no miracles or supernatural elements. And therefore, this is the text that we are trying to find. This is the, this is the true text that was written down. We need to go and find it. Um, so, clearly, we have a question we have to ask. What is the problem with demythologization? Well, like you said, it uh, presupposes something instead of looking at the 
the level of practice that are there. It decides to um, discount certain facts. Mm -hmm. It directly challenges what we know to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. He is the gospel. And that just wipes that out. Mm -hmm. The tragic thing is the church did not confront these things as they were happening. A lot of people are doing the interpretation. Well, they're not putting everything on the table. I mean, there's they're, they're presupposition. Yeah. Can't see that. Anyway, um, may take the supernatural off the table. And so, you know, why is that taken off the table? Because they think everything is scientific, it's all material, everything can fi be figured out materially. And it's really, it's a slippery slope. I mean, then, then you start to attack creation itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because that can't be, because that's a supernatural event. Yeah. It also happens to be bad science. Science doesn't deal in things that can't be proven. It's not the purpose of science. Anyone who's reasonably acquainted with science would understand that. Yes. Science doesn't disallow supernatural. <laughs> I think many people, many scientists would challenge that. Because oh, yeah. science was <laughs> I, I all about a focus on discovering it's a, God and his creation in the I, world in I which we live. I think most true sciences in the modern era would tell you that science deals with testable hypotheses. And anything that is not, by its very nature, a testable hypothesis is outside science's proper purview. I think that's what good and proper scientists in this era will tell you. Yeah, it's not their job to figure that out. Yeah, it, but that's it, not all there is in the universe. Yeah, I don't think truly good scientists would ever say that everything is well, testable. That's the <laughs> in itself, so. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I've read my fair share of... I'm sure you have. All right, moving on. Um, I do want to say the higher criticism is still around. It is still around in, in educational institutions, especially those quote-unquote liberal seminaries, if you want to call them that. Um, in my studies, our professors actually had us read some of their works just so that we are aware of them and we could identify their presuppositions so that we could um, discuss them and answer them if it ever came up. Um, on that little pyramid there, at the very bottom, though, there is something called lower criticism. And that contains something called textual criticism. I know there's a lot of criticisms going around. Um, but basically, lower criticism is trying to get to the text, comparing manuscripts together to see if there were any uh, scribal errors or errors or things. And a lot of our translations today uh, use textual criticism to get to the text that, oh, I knew I forgot to bring something, uh, to bring, use the Greek text especially. Um, as a basis for translation into English, Chinese, whatever. Um, and so that form of criticism is good. And it really is mostly a scientific um, endeavor to look at manuscripts and try to figure out, well, this one probably is the old, this is probably the correct wording or, or et cetera. Um, it deals nothing with, with doctrine or dogma or anything. It's just trying to compile 
a text as close as we can get to the original autographs, which we do not have anymore. So that form of criticism is is good in itself. I just wanted to be aware of that. No, not hermeneutics. No, no, no. no. Um, yeah. So textual criticism that that's pretty good. There's a gentleman. Remember this name, Michael Kruger. If you look him up. He's all over the Gospel Coalition website. Um, he's kind of one of the leading guys today on dealing with this stuff. Um, and he's, he's very down to earth, he's very good, and he's like head of one of the RTS seminaries around here. Um, he would be Michael Kruger, he'd be one guy to check out. All right, another challenge was Darwin and evolution. Um, I won't spend too much time on that, but look at that quote from Dawkins. Evolution made it possible to be an intellectually satisfied atheist, according to Dawkins. Um, we all know about evolution, and I won't spend much time on that because I'm running out of time, but we really need to get to this um, theological liberalism. This is a movement birthed out of modernism which sought to save Christianity from the damage caused by modernistic thinking by adapting its essence. So the main proponent of this guy was Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, this is a name you should know or be aware of. He is called the father of theological liberalism. He expressed his faith not as rational belief, but as a feeling of or dependence upon God. So here are some uh, tenets of his here. You reject the dogmas and propositions of religion. Religion does not need them. It is only human reflection on the content of your religious feelings or affections. Do you say that you cannot accept miracles, revelation, inspiration? You are right. We are children no longer. The time for fairy tales is past. Just a note, I'm an adult and I still read fairy tales, so. <laughs> but what he's saying is that the supernatural stuff, that's, that's not true. We don't need that anymore. And so um, he would be the father of this movement. Um, religion would turn not, it would, it would stray away from doctrine for the most part, um, reject the inspiration of the scriptures, reject a resurrection, reject, you know, total depravity, all that stuff, and religion now became based upon uh, feelings. But it also would morph into um, ethics, that we need to do good in this world. Theology would turn into good feelings, doing good works, and not holding to a, a historical reality that God came down to earth, lived and died and rose again for the salvation of sinners. And so there's a, there's a difference there in the emphasis. And then later I'll show that uh, someone, I'll talk about next week, someone said that these are actually two different religions, although they would use the same terms. Um, so it, it would also embrace and encourage higher criticism. And why do you think that is? Because if a religion is based upon your feelings, you really don't need some historical person or standard to take care of your problem. You can just go and feel good about God and then go out and do and help people. And so here's a quote that sums up theological liberalism. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. They totally eliminate all of that. In, in their belief and understanding and in their, in their practice. And so these are issues that the 19th century church had to deal with. As Landing had mentioned earlier, the church pretty much fell flat on its face in addressing these problems. 
but I'm going to leave it on a cliffhanger, and next week we will see how the church started to address uh, these problems. And um, so really what happened is the authority of the scriptures in, in culture and everyday life was severely curtailed, especially in the West, in, in, in England and in America, where science and reason became the ultimate standard for people in their lives and how they would live their lives. Out of this would come higher criticism, where we need to get to the true source behind the text. And then out of that would be theological liberalism, where religion, Christianity is a code of ethics, things that we do to help people, and things that make us feel good. It was not a set of doctrine that we held to, that a God entered into history and died for his people and then rose again. So I'll leave it on that cliffhanger, and next week we will see how the church addressed these issues. Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for... Um, Thank you for missionaries, Lord, and men and women like uh, Adoniram Judson who just pour themselves into uh, serving you. Thank you for men and women in this congregation who do the same in the context that you placed us in. Lord, as we hear about attacks on the church uh, in the 19th century um, that are actually still around and we're still dealing with them, help us not to be discouraged because you raise up men and women to deal with such issues. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to hold fast to the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that you would help us to do that. And uh, Lord, we ask that you prepare our hearts as we come into service this morning to hear your word preached. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>